to Children's Church. Ages 10 through 0. I guess that'd be hard to dress zero age children, but let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 32 and verse 13. The title of our message uh, fits so beautifully with what we sang about a little earlier, is be reconciled to God. Be ye reconciled to God. God, of course, um, at this particular time in the book of Genesis, as we've been working our way through it verse by verse, is raising up a very special nation, the nation of Israel. In fact, my goodness, we don't even know the name of the nation is Israel yet. Why do we call Israel Israel? We'll come back next week and we'll we'll talk about it because it's in the the text. But not for today. God, of course, as he raises up the nation of Israel, is dealing with three people, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. Jacob has been in Haran for 20 years, being unfairly treated financially and economically by his uncle, Laban. But in spite of that unfair treatment, Jacob continues to prosper. We'll see some signs of his prosperity here in our passage this morning. But then he receives a word from the Lord that it's now time to leave Haran uh, and to go back to the land of his nativity, the land of his birth, the land of Canaan, which eventually will be changed, the name of that land, to the land of Israel. So he makes this break with Laban, which is a good thing, but he's got another problem he's got to deal with. He's got to deal with the issue of what pushed him out of Canaan to begin with 20 years earlier, and that is his brother Esau, who has been cheated. Uh, At least Esau feels he's been cheated. Uh, Jacob has sort of moved into deception there. The, The brother Esau is mad about it. Let's just put it that way. He's angry to the point of a murderous rage. And that's why Jacob's mother had him leave Canaan and go to Haran. That season in his life is over, and now he's returning to the land of Canaan. Laban is in his rearview mirror, but he's still got to deal with the Esau problem. Uh, Life is sort of tough when someone's out there trying to murder you (laughs) or kill you. He doesn't know how this issue is going to be resolved, but it becomes chapters 32 and 33, a tremendous couple of chapters on the subject of reconciliation. And that's why I've entitled this message, Be Ye Reconciled to God. As Jacob is returning, he sends messengers out to Esau. 
The messengers come back and they say, guess what? Verse 6, I think it is, Jacob is coming with 400 men. Whoops, what does that mean? Is he coming with an army? Is he coming to kill me? And so Jacob gives a response. He takes his massive company, his wealth, and he divides it into two companies. Because the thinking is, well, if Esau destroys company A, at least Jacob will still have company B. If Esau destroys company B, at least he'll still have company A. And then as we saw last time, not only does he make that division, but he also prays, which is a pretty good practice when you hit trouble. Amen. He goes into prayer and we see what a prayer last week, a prayer of crisis looks like. And now he, verses 13 through 16, we're going to see if we can get through verses 13 through 21 today, makes what he thinks is an offer of appeasement to Esau. So we pick it up here in verses 13 through 16, and the first thing you see is sort of a set-aside. He starts to set aside part of his wealth, Jacob does, to appease Esau. Verse 13 says, so he spent the night there. Now, this is interesting because when you drop down to the very end of this paragraph, which would be verse 21, it says, so they, so the present passed on before him while he spent the night in the camp. So two references tonight sort of bracket this section. So these events that we're reading about here, um, I think probably including the prayer, encompass about a 12-hour time period. Um, It's sort of tempting to read this and think it all happened lickety-split, but this took about 12 hours to pull all of this off as Jacob now is walking through this procedure trying to appease his murderous brother Esau, who is now coming at him with... 400 men. So back to verse 13, it says, So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. So from his vast holdings, he sets aside some animals. He thinks this is going to be enough to appease his brother, to sort of you know, satisfy his brother. And the wealth starts to get enumerated. And keep in mind, this is not everything that Jacob owned. This is just what he set aside for this appeasement. The wealth starts to get enumerated there in verses 14 and 15. It says 200 female goats, 20 male goats, uh, 200 ewes and 20 rams, verse 15, 30 milking camels, and their cults, sounds like a virtual zoo he's got here, Uh, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. Uh, So what did Jacob rather set aside to appease his brother? Here it all comes. He, He set aside goats, rams, camels, cows, bulls, donkeys, According to my old math, it takes the number up to about 580 animals. 
these 580 animals are going to satisfy my brother in terms of a present who's coming at me with 400 men so that he will not kill me because of a grudge he's holding against me that took place 20 years ago is sort of the scenario here. And, you know, you, you run into these sorts of lists in the Bible, and it's very tempting to just kind of let your eyes glaze over as you read that without really picking up on the significance of it. A lot of times in our Bible reading, we're trying to answer the what question. But really, a lot of times we should be asking why. I mean, why does God tell me about these 580 animals? I mean, why do I have to know about goats, rams, camels, cows, bulls, uh, etc., donkeys? And that information is given because it shows you how God had blessed Jacob. He had blessed him financially. In fact, Jacob is under Laban for 20 years being mistreated. Having his wages changed, and that doesn't mean a raise. (laughs) That means he had his wages lowered, not once, not twice, not three times, but ten times. And yet through it all, God not only took care of Jacob, but actually brought him to a season in his life where he was prospering. And in biblical times, this is how wealth was measured. It wasn't like, it's not like today where we measure wealth, I think unfortunately through dollars and a fiat currency and how much we have in our bank accounts or how little we have in our bank accounts maybe. (laughs) But it's measured in terms of actual tangible items that you own. And Jacob owned a lot of it. And keep in mind that when he crossed the Jordan and went to Haran up north, he went with only his staff. And now he's coming back with two wives, two maids, 13, excuse me, 11 sons and one daughter and a lot of wealth that Laban basically tried to make sure Jacob did not get his hands on. As we've been studying this, Jacob didn't steal any of these things. But these are things that God blessed him with. This is an outworking of what God said all the way back in Genesis 12, verse 2. Genesis 12, verse 2, God laid out the blessings that would come to the nation of Israel unconditionally and unilaterally from God. God laid out to the patriarch Abram when he called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to form this special nation, the nation of Israel. He laid out to him eight promises. And one of those promises was the promise of personal blessing. This is why Genesis 12 and verse 2, God speaking to Abram, and then by extension Isaac, and then by extension Jacob said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Notice God doesn't say, I'm going to do this if, or I'm going to do this assuming. He says, I'm going to do this, period. And what you're seeing here in Genesis 32 is the outworking of it. Um, this is just the sort of the, the the tip of his wealth. I mean, he could have given to Esau in terms of this gift a lot more, but this is just a small sampling. 
these 580 animals, um, if he's going to give those away, think how much more he owned. If he is going to take his company, as we saw last week, and divide it into two, because if Esau gets half of it, I'll be fine financially. I mean, could you do that with your wealth? I've got so much money that I'm going to divide it in two. I'm going to put half of it in the stock market, and if it goes belly up, that's okay. I've still got enough. Um, If that's your predicament, you can come talk to me after. But, uh, I mean, most people don't obtain this level of wealth, and, and, and this is what Jacob had. And he had it because God said he would have it. And he had it in spite of the fact that his uncle did everything within his power to prevent him from having it. And you might be saying to yourself, well, pastor, you know, I don't really have too many goats, rams, camels, cows, bulls, donkeys. Some of you do because you're in the farming industry. So, gee, I, I really don't feel that wealthy compared to what Jacob had. I want you to understand that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you may not have all of the riches the world system says you should have, but you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. Because your wealth is not earthly, but it's heavenly. Earthly wealth can be a great thing, but heavenly wealth, that's a step up, isn't it? And this is what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, the point of the book is you're rich. It's not like you have to live as a spiritual pauper. Because you're in Jesus, you're rich. And this is how Paul begins the book. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In other words, the blessing has already happened. I don't have to go before the Lord saying, Lord, bless me. The Lord says, bless you. What else do you want? Your bank account is maxed out spiritually. The blessing occurred the moment you trusted in my son. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us with, what's the next word? Every, not 99% or 92%, but every spiritual blessing in the what? Heavenly places. You may not feel like you're rich as a Christian, but you are. The whole point of the book of Ephesians is there to explain that to us. And because we're spiritually rich, we should act differently. And because we're spiritually rich, we have an enemy or a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The criminals of this world know know who to target. They target people with resources. And because your bank account is maxed out spiritually, you have an arch enemy, Satan, who tries everything within his power to neutralize your life. That's why we need to put on the full armor of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 talks about our inheritance. And it says to attain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. And it will not fade away. Why not? Because it's reserved in heaven for you. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, that thieves can't break in and steal it. Inflation can't devalue it. Government debt and the government running the printing press uh, can't destroy it. 
uh, bad energy policies of our politicians can't wreck it. Unemployment can't gobble it up. It's reserved in heaven for you. And so we should behave differently and act differently because of what we have. And, and we say to ourselves, well, we, we really don't deserve that. And you're right on that. We don't. But God has decided to work with us via the principle of grace. Unmerited favor. That's why we have what we have. What did the Lord say to the little struggling church at Smyrna in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 9? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty financially. But then he put in this little parenthetical statement, but you're rich. You're rich even though you feel like you're poor. You're rich even though the world system tells you that you're poor. Because you have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you, which can't be defiled and it's unfading. You receive that the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. I mean, it is true that the nation of Israel is by and large God's earthly people. That's why Israel's wealth is talked about in Scripture in earthly ways. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with having earthly wealth. But what I'm trying to communicate is the wealth that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the wealth that we have as members of Christ's church, it it, it so transcends what is being spoken of here. I mean, what is being spoken of here is outstanding. But you have so much more in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus could say to that church at Smyrna that was having so many problems, I know your poverty, but you're actually rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know about your persecutors. I know about the people that are slandering you. I know about your financial struggles, but you're rich. And consequently, we learn to think differently about ourselves, don't we? When we see our true identity in Christ. So Jacob sets aside a gift for Esau. That gift is enumerated in verses 14 and 15. And then he, very interestingly, divides this into different divisions. You go to verse 16 and it says, He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself. So what I think is happening here is we've got five groups of animals. Goats, uh, what, 220 rams with ewes, 220 camels, 60 cattle, 150 donkeys, 20, but who's counting, right? Um, You continue on in verse 16, and it says, He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between the droves. So I think what's happening here is this gift is going to be presented to Esau in terms of five sections. Five sections of wealth and a space between each section. In other words, when Esau comes with his 400 men, he's not going to see everything at once. He's going to see this gift sort of being rolled out 
in stages or phases. But Esau ultimately is to receive five sets of gifts step by step. And this is what Jacob thinks is going to appease uh, Esau. And then Jacob gives some instructions to his servants. You see that there in verses 17 through 20. The first group is mentioned there, verses 17 and 18. And it says, he commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? In other words, what Esau is doing here is he is anticipating, excuse me, what Jacob is doing here is he is anticipating Esau's questions. Lay out the wealth, lay it out in five stages. This is all happening over a 12-hour sunlight period. And as the wealth is laid out and as Esau comes with 400 men and he sees all of this in phases, he's going to ask these three questions. And I'm going to tell you how to answer each question before he asks. First thing Esau is going to ask is, number one, verse 17, whose are you? Number two, where are you going? Number three, all in verse 17, who are these behind you? Now, here is the answers. I'm giving you the answer to the question before the question's even asked. Uh, you look at verse 18, and it says, Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he is behind us. Here is how you answer the questions. Number one, these things, these gifts, ultimately belong to Jacob. Number two, they are a present to Esau. Now, watch very carefully verses 17 and 18 because Jacob is referring to himself as a servant. And he's referring to Esau as Lord. Why is that? Because when God gave the patriarchal blessing, God said the opposite is going to happen. All the way back in Genesis 25-23, when Jacob and Esau were within the womb of their mother, And that, by the way, is a tremendous pro-life verse. There's a lot of debate in our culture about abortion and pro-life. Well, if you're a biblicist, you're automatically pro-life because God is pro-life. God says what's happening in the womb of your mother are two nations, Jacob and Esau. And that's not to heap guilt on people that have made an error or mistake. The grace of God is always available. But the Bible means what it says and says what it means. I'm not in a position to to develop cultural and social views that are independent of God's word. I want my politics to come from the word of God. And that's how you look at the different issues of the day. You filter them, all of them, through the lens of a biblical worldview. But I digress. Back in Genesis 25:23, it said, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. 
That's not the way it normally works. It's the younger that serves the older. God says, I'm going to reverse it in this case. The older is going to serve the younger. Well, if that's the case, why is Jacob here referring to himself as a servant and referring to his brother as Lord? It should be the opposite. Other examples where God reversed what is normal is in Genesis 27:29. He said, be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. He said that to Jacob. Verse 37, God said, Behold, I have made him your master and all the relatives I have given to him as servants. In other words, what the point I'm trying to make, and I think the reason that Jacob is operating by fear here, is he's not seeing himself the way God sees him. God had reversed those titles, and here Jacob is going back to the world's way of thinking. This is a a very serious issue because in spiritual warfare, we frequently do this. We stop seeing ourselves the way God has declared us to be. We don't see ourselves as wealthy. We, We don't see ourselves as saints. And did you know that you're a saint? If you're a Christian and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says you're a saint. You say, well, my conduct this week wasn't very saintly. Well, that has nothing to do with it. Saint is your position. It is something that God has spoken about you the moment you trusted in the work of his son. It has nothing to do with feelings or behavior or performance. It has to do with an objective truth that God has declared and God cannot lie. And isn't it interesting that if we see ourselves the way God sees us, we start to live differently, don't we? Oh, well, God says I'm a saint. Maybe I should uh, clean up a few things in my daily life. Because when I'm doing a bunch of bad things in my daily life, I'm not really living according to my identity. This is why your identity in Christ, understanding who you are in Jesus Christ, is such a big deal. You have to get a, you've got to at some point get a handle on that. You've got to wrap your mind around that because the commands of God will start to make sense when we see ourselves the way God sees us. When the children of Israel traveling from Sinai, an 11 day journey, made their way to Kadesh Barnea, an 11 day journey, 11 days and you're in. Kadesh Barnea being the uh, southern border of the nation of Israel. God had brought them out of the Egyptian captivity. He had taken them to Mount Sinai. They had received God's law. There was manna. There was provision of water daily. And all they had to do was keep trusting the Lord for 11 days. You just keep trusting me for 11 days and you'll inherit Canaan. And we know how that story ended. They looked into the land. They saw giants in the land. They fell into fear. And what could have been an 11-day journey turned into a 40-year nightmare. What went wrong exactly with that generation? The answer is they stopped seeing themselves the way God sees them. 
and they lost heart in the midst of battle. That is exactly what will happen to me. It's exactly what will happen to you when we lose sight of our identity in Christ. We will start to cave into things by way of temptation, cater into things that we shouldn't cater into. Numbers chapter 13 verse 33 describes the whole problem. It's in the mind. The most powerful thing God has given you of many, many blessings, one of the most powerful is the mind. Uh, The book of Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so he is. Satan does not have to get control of every square inch of your body to defeat you. The only thing he has to do is infiltrate the arena of the mind. And if you won't give Satan all of your mind, he'll take part of it. Because he knows that if he influences that, he influences your whole being. I've used this example before, but it's like the hijackers, 9-11 hijackers. They didn't have to get control of every square inch of the airplane. All they had to do was gain control of where the pilots sit. What influences the direction of the whole plane? You control that, you control the plane. This is why there's so much in the Bible about renewing your mind. I'm thinking of Psalm 1, Joshua 1. It says, on his law, meditate, how frequently? Day and night, because the battle is the mind. Romans 12, verse 2, renew the mind. That's the whole biblical focus. The mind, the mind, the mind, because as a man thinks, so he is. So they got to the, the border there of Canaan, and they could have had it. But they went into fear, and they went into 40 years of discipline because they became, Numbers 13, verse 33, like grasshoppers, look at this very carefully, in our own sight. They weren't grasshoppers, but in their minds they were. What they should have said, and of course hindsight is twenty twenty. what they should have said is, gee whiz, you know, we've got giants in the land, but so what? Look at what God has done for our generation. Let's just cross the finish line here and let God take care of the rest. But they didn't. It was mental. It was a, it was a mental game. I think that's what's happening to Jacob here. He's Lord, not servant, but he's reversing those and making it sound like Esau is Lord and Jacob is servant. And he, if he had just gone back to the revelation of God and what God said, he wouldn't be operating in fear the way he does here. So they belong to Jacob. Here's what you're to say. The present is sent to Esau. Jacob is behind us. You go down to verses 19 and 20, and he deals with the remaining groups. Because remember, he's got this wealth, his gift anyway, divided up into five groups. I think what's described thus far is group one. Well, what about the rest of the groups? We have some instructions Verse 19, Genesis 32, Then he commanded also the second and the third 
and all those who followed the droves. So this is a command for the second group, the third group, and those that followed, which would be group four and group five. And here's how you are to answer anticipated questions coming from Esau. End of verse 19, end of verse 20. Saying, after this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. You shall say, behold, your servant. Look at that language. Jacob is behind us. So say Jacob is behind us. But again, he refers to himself as a servant, as he does in verse 4 and verse 18. He seems to not be walking in the patriarchal blessing. He seems to have his mind on all kinds of things other than what God said about him. And I think his behavior probably could be a little different if his thoughts were in the right place. You know, this is why Ephesians 6 talks about the helmet of salvation. And it talks about the fiery darts of the wicked one. Where are those fiery darts lobbed? They're constantly lobbed to the mind. Satan would have no greater joy to put a thought into your mind thinking that thought came from God or thinking that thought came from yourself. I'm not denying the fact that in our carnality we can have our own wicked thoughts independent of what Satan does. But Satan is constantly in the business of trying to influence or infiltrate the mind. That's why you need a helmet which protects the head to protect you from the fiery darts which are aimed at the mind. This is, this is spiritual warfare. But, you know, you, you talk to um, people that understand warfare, military, they'll tell you that most battles are won or lost long beforehand. It has to do with preparation. And I'm telling you it's the exact same thing in your Christian life. You know, there are, there are times in my Christian life where I've gone out and fallen flat on my face. And it doesn't have much to do with the immediate problem that I went through. It has to do with an improper conditioning of my mind. If I had just thought thoughts according to divine truth, this result would have been different. And you move down into verse 20, and now you have Jacob's desire to appease Esau through all of this. Look at verse 20. And you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. Now look at the second half of verse 20 very carefully. For he said, I will appease. You should underline that word appease. I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterwards I will see his face and perhaps, you should underline the word perhaps, perhaps he will accept me. Let's talk uh, just for a minute about this word appease. What does that even mean? It means to satisfy someone's wrath. Arnold Fruchtenbaum of this verse in his Genesis commentary writes, 
For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. The Hebrew word for appease has the same Hebrew word root as atonement. What this means is that Jacob was seeking Esau's forgiveness. Afterward, I will see his face and peradventure he will accept me. Atonement. What does that even mean, atonement? Because if you don't understand atonement, I realize that this concept of atonement is being applied to a horizontal relationship between Jacob and Esau. But it has everything to do with your vertical relationship to God. Your vertical relationship to God exists because of this concept of atonement. What does atonement even mean? And here we're dealing with our relationship to the Lord. It means substitute. If you don't have the word substitute in your understanding of atonement, you don't understand your standing before God. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was our substitute on that cross. It should have been me. It's like uh, in the movies, uh, someone, an assassin, you know, shoots the hero. And at the last minute, the security guard or whoever leaps in front of the bullet and absorbs the bullet in the place of the, of the person that the bullet was intended to hit. That's atonement. That's what Jesus did for us. He, he was our substitute. You see it expressed very clearly in many passages of the Bible, not the least of which is Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, a messianic prophecy given 700 years in advance. It says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and appointed with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now watch substitute in this, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and affliction. Verse, and afflicted, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Reminds me of going back to youth group days. I've used this um, analogy before on a trip and the bee with the stinger. How many times can a bee sting, by the way? Only once. Was in the car and everybody was screaming and yelling, uh, particularly the girls, by the way. But the youth pastor reaches out and grabs the bee Holds it in his hand for a second, 
and lets it go. And and as he let it go, you could see the stinger in his hand. And he says, you don't have to be afraid of this anymore. I took the sting for you. You see that? That's atonement. It's appeasement of a sentence that rightfully belongs upon us. This um, is one of the things that bothers me a lot, to be frank with you, about modern day presentations of Jesus. Hey, uh, trust Jesus as your Savior. He's gonna, he, he'll be your great supplier. Are, are you down financially? Trust Jesus and he'll fill your bank account. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, I don't know. But that's not why Jesus came into the world. That wasn't his principal purpose. I remember one book I saw not long ago. It was called Jesus CEO. And it's this kind of this book about, you know, you really need to study the life of Jesus because he's going to unleash uh, how to be a right leader. If you're running a business, here's some CEO principles to follow. Not disputing the fact that there aren't great leadership principles in the life of Christ, but that wasn't his primary reason in coming to the earth. His primary reason in coming to the earth was to be our substitute, atonement, to take in his body, physically and spiritually, what should be on me and should be on you. It's jumping into the line of fire and absorbing the bullet in our place. That's what Jesus did. That's what makes Jesus such a big deal. Hey, are you lonely? Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. No question that that's true. But if you think that's why he came into the world primarily, you've missed the point. The point of his coming is atonement. Some have described it as at-one-ment. To appease the wrath of God the Father in our place. And any presentation of Jesus that doesn't have that as its starting point is dramatically cheapening what Jesus did. Reducing him to marketing principles or the cure for this or the cure for that. We kind of think that this concept of atonement is something that the church has clearly understood for the last 2,000 years. It hasn't. If you look at the dates here, you'll see the church for the last 2,000 years, really beginning in the 1100s, to be frank with you, starting to really iron this out. Atonement being substitute. Because people early in church history were teaching the ransom to Satan view. That Christ's death is a ransom to Satan and not the Father. That's not what the Bible says. Christ's death was not a ransom to Satan. It was a ransom. What is a ransom? It's paying a price like someone kidnaps someone in your family. They call your house and they want a, a ransom. I'll release so-and-so from captivity if you pay the right price. That's what a ransom is. But it wasn't a ransom to the devil. It was a ransom to God the Father who has every right in his holiness to vent wrath on us. And the church early on said, no, the ransom to Satan view doesn't work because it denies substitute. 
Then they, later on in church history, someone came up with the moral influence view of Jesus, that Christ's death is just an expression of God's love. Clearly, his death is an expression of his love for us, but if that's all you think it is, you've cheapened or we've cheapened why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to be our substitute. And then in church history came the moral example view that Christ's death, what does it do? It just inspires us to be better people. He was sacrificial, so we should go out and be sacrificial. By the way, I'm not denying that that happens when you study the life of Christ, but that's not why Christ came into the world. That wasn't his primary mission. His primary mission was to be my substitute. Then came along the governmental view of atonement where people started to say, well, Christ's death promotes respect for God's law because God punishes lawbreakers, so maybe I should be a better law keeper. I mean, no, no doubt that that understanding can have an effect on us, but that doesn't capture why Jesus came into the world. He came in the world to be my substitute. This last one is just liberalism on steroids where they started to argue. And I want you to understand that this type of thinking took over the mainline denominations around 1920. Look it up historically. It's called the modernist fundamentalist controversy. There's reasons why our church, uh, more of a biblical fundamentalist view, does not have the biggest building in Houston with stained glass windows and universities and endowments and libraries. The liberals went right into the denominations. Harry Emerson Fosdick, his famous sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, with all of this sort of liberal thinking, took over. And when that happens, you lose buildings, you lose endowments, you lose a lot. And so we left. This is our history. We left and started independent churches. A lot of people will criticize fundamentalists and say, you know, well, look at these little buildings you're meeting in. Well, there's a history there, folks. There's a history why that happened if you take the time to study it. And it has to do with a tug of war about a lot of different issues, not the least of which is the atoning death of Jesus. Liberalism would say Jesus, his life and death, his death was just an accident. And fate ended Christ's life. The problem with that, of course, is what Jesus said in John 10, 18 For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This is the commandment I received from the Father. You shouldn't get an understanding of Christ's life that forces outside of his control ushered him to an early grave. That is not what happened. Jesus was in control of everything that was going on and could have stopped it just like that. But he didn't. 
because his mission was atonement, substitution. Here's some fancy buzzwords for the day. You ready? Vicarious, penal, substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus. Vicarious, you know what that is, in the place of someone else. Vicarious, penal, punishment. He absorbed our punishment in our place. Vicarious, atoning, penal, substitutionary. I hope in your Christology, your doctrine of Christ, you're seeing the concept of substitute. Because if Jesus is some set of principles beneath that, we have a warped view of who Jesus is. I mean, it should have been me on that cross, but Jesus died there in my place. It should have been my blood that was spilled. Jesus spilled it for me. He took the bee sting for me. And isn't it interesting that when you understand this and trust in it for salvation, it gets rid of this word here, perhaps. Because Jacob is sort of applying the principle, not vertically, but horizontally. And he's sending all these gifts. And he really doesn't know if Esau is going to accept it or not. Maybe I'll be saved from Esau's wrath. Maybe not. But that's not what you have in Jesus Christ. You have, here's another word, propitiation. Satisfaction of divine wrath. 100% guaranteed because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. So there's no perhaps here at all. It's 100% certain. I understand that in our world, nobody likes certainty anymore. Everybody's certain of everything except their own uncertainty. People say, well, I'm I'm uncertain about that. And I go, why are you certain of your own uncertainty? We, We don't like certainty, but Christianity is about certainty. It's about what Jesus did. The wrath of God has been satisfied because of the atoning substitutionary work of Jesus, vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And so now I have 100%. We're not dealing with the weather report here, folks. 70% chance of rain. How's that working for us today, by the way? I mean, they can't even get the weather report certain. But you have 100% certainty of eternity with God because of the vicarious, penal, substitutionary, atoning work of Jesus. This is why Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, John 5.24, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not maybe might get it. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of life unto death. It happens just in a nanosecond because of what Jesus paid in terms of a ransom, not to the devil, but to the God the Father. 
This is why Jesus in John 19 verse 30 said, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It's not like, okay, we've got it done about 95% here. You guys kick in the rest. I bought lunch. You better leave the tip. The final words that came out of his mouth were, it is finished. It's a translation of the Greek word to telestai, accounting term, which means paid in full. Once that was, once that happened, his earthly mission was over. He bowed up his head and gave up his, his spirit. This is why we need to be reconciled to God. This is, this is the pathway to reconciliation to God. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and 20 says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Look at what God did. Look at how he's reconciled me. And then do you say your your unsaved family member or co-worker, you can be reconciled too. There's no perhaps here. Because Jesus was our substitute. Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. That's why I entitled this message, Be Reconciled to God. This is what Jacob is trying to do with his brother. He's doing it horizontally. There's a big perhaps here because he doesn't know what his brother's going to do with this overture. But if you just take that concept of atonement, which is in the biblical text here in Hebrew, and apply it to your relationship with God, you can just erase the word perhaps. There's there's no perhaps about it. It's a 100% certainty. The paragraph ends there, verse 21, with some concluding circumstances. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. So the presence passed on before Jacob. We're not exactly sure what Esau is going to do with these gifts. And then Jacob lodged there for the night. Jacob spent the night in the camp. Now remember how everything started, verse 13, in the night? So he spent the night. And then here we are at the end of the paragraph, and it says, while he himself spent the night. So if I'm understanding this right, within the 12-hour portion of the daylight, all of these events that we're reading about transpired. It didn't happen instantly, but this arrangement is something that Jacob carefully put together to hopefully appease his brother. But here's the deal, folks. God has put together an arrangement for you. Happened 2,000 years ago. 
For one member of the Trinity, God the Father, poured out His wrath on another member of the Trinity, God the Son, so that wrath would not have to be extended to us if we receive by faith as a gift what He did in our place. And so we would encourage you today to be reconciled to God. If you're here today and you're unclear of your eternity, you can fix that issue right now. 100%. No questions asked. By trusting in the vicarious, penal, substitutionary, atoning work of Jesus who came into the world to be our substitute. And don't hold out for a better deal because none exists. If you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, you can do it now. You don't have to join a church to do this. You don't have to walk an aisle to do this. You don't have to vow to give money to do this. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Spirit convicts you of your need to be reconciled to God and simply commands that we trust in what Jesus did. Christianity is not a 12-step program. See, all, all the steps were accomplished by Jesus. He gives us one step. Our one step is to trust in what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. Pretty pretty interesting paragraph, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but I want to know about Jacob wrestling with God and... I want to know about where the name Israel came from, and we'll get to that. Not today, though. We'll get to that next week, so I encourage you to come back next week for that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word, grateful for how a story like this that happened 4,000 years ago uses types which we can apply to our relationship to you. We're grateful to you, Lord, not as our fulfiller, not as our leadership expert, but as our substitute. So thankful. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. And God's people said,